Yes, that is exactly what it sounds like, guys. The resort is back. The, the Lars Resort with me, Lars Hewerson, brought to you by Betson. Back for the second part of our chat with Miles Coleman. This is, of course, a bit of a left turn for, for the pod. It's, it's not me being a nerd and sort of blasting weird stats at you from a great distance. It, it's not Peter and I like throwing hot takes at each other and uh, and stuff. But I, but I really enjoy speaking to Miles. I just found he was one of those people who really intelligent and eloquent and very passionate about what he does as well so people like that are always worth listening to i think and uh, i just didn't want to cut any of it is <laughs> the short part so it became a two-parter uh, the conversation was a real education uh, for me and uh, i found it very enjoyable as, as such i hope you guys feel the same do not worry we'll be back to like hamstrings and xg and formations and stuff soon enough uh, but it is International Week after all. What better time to discuss and reflect on international football, FIFA, the future of the game, all of those things. So let us dive back into it and welcome Miles Coleman back to the resort. I'd like to, before, we've gotten a lot, of, a lot of your time here, but if, if you can stay for a little bit longer, I want to take, row us back into... Into into documentary waters. I, I went into the Rose Gallery a bit early because I, I I had a period of being slightly obsessed with Chuck Blazer just as a character because he's so improbable. And I do believe the Chuck Blazer blog is still online. God rest his soul, Chuck Blazer. I think he he's and the on, YouTube channel. Yeah, <laughs> these things are still online. Him pictures of him being on a private jet with Nelson Mandela and all this and Mandela looking videos of his cats, videos of him driving around Central Park on his motor scooter with the parrot on the. On the handlebar. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah, th- there must be a Chuck Blazer biopic in the works at some point. I, mean, I have that must been be told that um, there is. It's Will Ferrell playing Chuck Blazer. <laughs> That's genuine. I mean, this has been in the works for ages, but God, I want to see that so bad. That seems like, like a sort of Adam McKay, Chuck Blazer bi- biopic thing with Will Ferrell. I think I, I, I would watch that a lot. Yeah, I would. I mean, it's, you know, I've. I think it's ripe for a scripted movie. There's some kind of fun scripted, semi-dramatized series out there. There's El Presidente on Amazon, which is um, actually was one of the most helpful things in getting people to speak because the people involved in FIFA hated it so much. Really? We were like, when we were messaging people, they're like, no, it's going to be like El Presidente. We're like, we'll do the opposite. They're like, fine, where do you want me? <laughs> Um, the life and times of Chuck Blazer. Then you're sort of in the middle of like Anchorman on one hand and The Big Short on the other, and in the middle could be the Chuck Blazer biopic. I think in tone and uh, and content. Yeah, I mean, he, like the thing about Chuck, like Chuck Blazer is the epitome of that like one foot in front of the other way of living life. Like I'm gonna take this check. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna move on forward. And he, that man, lived his life like every day he could. It could all be over. The, the the dream, the money, the fun, the parties, the women could all be over. And also he was, as people have spoken about, incredibly unhealthy. So he literally lived like any day he could kill over of a heart attack. So he, he lived 110, like there's almost this kind of like Maradona-like quality <laughs> to him, which is like every day is a party. I'm just going to fling myself at it. But I also like, I shouldn't give the idea away that he like yeah there's some fun and some jokes in it but he was um he's been accused of being violent towards women um i don't know what people's political leanings are listening to this but like one of the last photos of him is him in hospital breathing tubed up in a in a maga hat like i think perhaps to its detriment one of the things that's happened in the chuck blazer story is he's kind of 
being portrayed as this kind of uh, bon vivant, fun guy to have a drink with character. And I think there was a lot of darkness in him as well. From a documentary perspective, a fascinating character to have because, you know, it, it just showed the extent to which FIFA was had been infiltrated by people who did not have the game's best interest at heart. And, and him and Jack Warner... What a what a deadly duo in terms of capabilities and and sensibilities and everything. I do think Jack Warner saying, "If you're pious, go build a church, my friend," is one of my favorite sort of FIFA related quotes. I, I use that on a on a regular basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm only semi joking. There are all these like FIFA quotes that have like when you watch it and you're, you're absorbed in it, it has like steeped into my vocabulary so yeah. much. Crisis, what crisis? It's like <laughs> so many. Yeah, if you're pious, go build a church. I love that. This line. is not a bazaar. <laughs> this is not a bazaar. <laughs> For some reason, always sticks with me. Yeah. It's a podcast. This is not a bazaar. <laughs> Yeah, because that's you know we we went into it earlier, but it's such an obvious structural challenge for FIFA. Because I I you know again me being a hopelessly idealistic, I I actually think it's really important that we have an umbrella organization for the sport where 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 the people from Montserrat and the people from Burundi and the people from uh, the Faroe Islands and the people from uh, New Guinea and all these places are heard and are and have to be taken seriously because so i can promise you one thing no one would if they didn't have to like the, the big european countries would not give a shit about any of these guys if they didn't have to like like so many in the lamestream media i'm here with problems not solutions <laughs> i don't have a solution to this i've looked at fifa like lived breathed slept fifa for three and a half four years and i do not have a clean and easy solution other than everyone should please just be nice and be better and don't steal things um i don't really know what the answer is to it because i agree with you and, and what's really interesting um about about your point about you know it's good that these countries have a voice is how much of societies and politics hang-ups are kind of bought with uh, these countries into the into fifa house so so much of the kind of what really disappointed me when I when I met people involved in football and administrators is the the broad brushstrokes that would be applied. You Northern European, I've done it myself on this mm. podcast. You yeah, Northern yeah, Europeans yeah, yeah, yeah. think like this. We do things like this. There was no nuance. There was no and and there was this real kind of like oh um, post colonial world versus European world. Oh, of course the Spanish speaking ones would all band together. So like when we look at the World Cup votes. For example, Spain was bidding for a World Cup and it was just like, oh yeah, all the Latin Americans will vote for them because they speak the same language. And it was like, you you can't be serious, right? This is one of the most important decisions in world sport, nay, in the, in the world. And it goes down to, you lot speak the same language. Same with the Qatar World Cup. Um, it was, you know, there was this idea that this is a, a, a World Cup for the Muslim world and all Muslim... Um, FIFA committee members were expected implicitly to vote for them. I just couldn't believe the broadest of brushstrokes. And you think it's going to be more nuanced when you get in there. But there was, you know, it was just this kind of array of stereotypes just bumping into each other. And I don't really think that's something that FIFA have have rushed to clean up. Because I think it really helps them. It really helps Jenny Infantino or anyone stay in power to treat all of these small countries as a block and go, you are... You're you're the underdogs. You're the ones who aren't listened to. The Northern Europeans are just smug, and you should all band together. And I'm your guy, and I get you. I found that level of dialogue and political dialogue just 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 completely base and embarrassing. 
and unsuitable for a modern organization and 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 more to the point it means that people call into question the inherent benefits of a one country one vote system because at the moment one country one vote just doesn't work mm. you end up with these blocks that are too big and can't be broken up by candidates promising different things i refuse to believe that all of the countries in the global south all have the same priorities all of the time they don't you know it's you know as an example right there are small countries that qualify for world cups and there's small countries that don't um panama qualify for a world cup so they must have a very different lens on football as Papua New Guinea, but they're sort of treated the same by people who I think manipulate wider political messaging about anti-colonial sentiments for their own benefits. And one of the things that really bugged me, it bugged me about learning about FIFA and it also bugged me when the series came out was how how accusations of racism were bandied about. Whenever Jack Warner was had his feet held to the fire about um, corruption, it was racism, it was... It was America. I think it does a great disservice to genuine racism to have to yeah. to invoke it no, only it. when you are accused of corruption. And we all know that FIFA have been pretty lax on combating racism in football. So, um, yeah, it, it was a really. In, but also, when the series came out, there was a lot of online because you know, obviously, you, you spend all the time making a series. So you go straight on Twitter and like, what are people saying about it? And I found it really interesting. The amount of people are going, oh, this is like classic salty europeans they're annoyed they lost the world cup bit blah 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 uh, putting aside the fact that i was born in south africa i would say it, it it's interesting to me that that level of dialogue has pervaded through football to the point where even though we were showing gross mismanagement um of, of football's financials the argument was not you're wrong but who are you to point this out and I think that's a real shame. Yeah, no, that the the accusations of racism were definitely like weaponized by by certain bad faith actors within the discourse around the World Cup. There's absolutely no doubt of that, and I, I suspect, yeah, it's, it, that is a distressing development because that 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 kind of goes to it's. It, it's such a troubling accusation for people to receive, I think, because it's something that we're raised very clearly to, to view as the, the thing we should definitely not be under any circumstances. Absolutely. And it was really interesting because I think a lot of people, one thing I, I saw people say was, oh, I hope. So let's talk specifically about Qatar, right? Because it was a massive part of the Qatari PR push to go, if people are accusing the Qatari bid of of being corrupt or paying people, it's it's racist. And as Hassan himself says in the documentary, it sort of feeds into the stereotype of Arabs just throwing their money around. And um, but they, but, you know, demonstrably <laughs> that that bid was about its money. Um, and like I like I just said a second ago, it's it, to me I find it really offensive to have the rebuttal of you can't call us corrupt because that would be racist without saying oh and here's the proof that we're not corrupt right and what's really i I think what's also interesting and and let's look to the future on this is the comment i read a lot was oh these guys sure they're taking out qatar but are they going to do the same for america and the american world cup and america's just as bad and america has has you know does drone strikes and 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 whatnot here's what i'd say about the the sort of point of oh, are you going to go after America in the same way? Putting aside the fact that I'm not American and have no great love for America invading Iraq, putting that to one side, the difference is the Qatari World Cup bid was a state and government-backed project. It was all about nation building. The Qatari bid, the Russian bid, 
the South African bid couldn't happen without government support. And government was supporting it because it was a crucial part of their nation-building identity. So it's impossible to separate the bid from that country's political aims. I think the US bid is different because basically that's a, that's a coalition of the US Federation, the broadcasters and businesses putting together a bid for a World Cup tournament. I don't think the US government and the US state needs World Cup in 2026 to be part of a nation-building project. And more to the point, if the US soccer federation wants to do something it doesn't have to run every little thing by the white house but it's totally different to the qatari system where it was a completely political project it was a complete so i personally don't believe that um the world cup in qatar i believe that the world cup in qatar reflects inherently and endogenously what is happening in that state and in that government in a way that is really different to the u.s world cup so i don't actually think those two are parallel um but it would be interesting to investigate, nevertheless. Well, we actually, the funny thing is, we've had this exact. Well, I've seen this exact conversation, and certainly I haven't taken part of it because I've, I've got better things to do. But you've seen people squabbling over whether, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo going to Saudi is is inherently, you know, it, it's no different. Lionel Messi, Messi going to MLS because there are bad things that happen in America as well. Which again, you run into the whole state project versus just going to a club that happens to be in a country type of thing. So you're saying this is basically mirrored in the hosting situation as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good example. It's like Neymar flies over to Saudi on a jet that's basically Saudi Air Force One, right? So that happens with the approval, assent, encouragement of the Saudi state. Lionel Messi going to play in Miami. I mean, do you, do you think that crosses Joe Biden's desk? I mean, let's get real. Like, it's like they live in two different spheres. And even if it does, Joe Biden can't sign off or push for it. It, it just it happens without him. And people might listen to that and go, oh, he sounds like he's letting America off the hook. But I just think that, like, they are totally different. And the difference is Qatar is not a functioning democracy. Qatar is an autocracy. There is one leader in Qatar. It doesn't have a free press. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have... The, the the way that the country is controlled is totally different to the US. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I, I would encourage journalists to go who follow the US World Cup to talk about the wider issues. But I just think it's disingenuous and pure whataboutery to be like, are we going to talk about gun crime in Nebraska? If you don't, you're a bad journalist and you're a racist. I just think that's disingenuous. And I... I if I, you know, the last thing I say is hats off to the Qatari PR machine for even putting that thought into pe- people's heads because I think that's where it stems from. Yeah, no, they, they've had some very, very good uh, PR companies, some of which I'm sure are based here in London. I would imagine they're some of the best in the world. Every every Qatari PR person I dealt with, based in Doha, was British. I mean, nice people, don't get me wrong, but yeah, all, all British. Well, well, lastly, on that, it is something that frustrates me a little bit the nature of those debates because i think it's driving more and more voices out of the debating chamber entirely i think there are people who might have uh who might be worth listening to who just look look at the state of the discourse on social media on this subject who just decide you know what life is too short to engage with this nonsense and and I'm not sure if that's a feature or a bug, but that seems to be a result of the the PR push from one side in this particular case. Here's the here's the thing about the Qatar World Cup and the the Saudi project, and my money would say the Saudi World Cup either in 2030 or 2034. And here's something, and this is something that I I hope the documentary addresses, but if it is too subtle, let me make it really clear now for your viewers. 
I think people often misunderstand why Saudi and Qatar and UAE and indeed Russia and all of these places are trying to put their money into football. I think people think that the reason Qatar bid for the World Cup, the reason Saudi are bringing these players over is to make people love Saudi and Qatar. I think what's happened, for example, with Newcastle and people flying the Saudi flag is people go, oh yeah, I see it. They want Bob in Newcastle to love Saudi Arabia and go on holiday there and and generally feel positive about it. And the thing I want to emphasize to people is it's not about us here in the West. That Qatar and Saudi are much more interested in using sport to position themselves as part of a different world order. A world order that is Asian and African in focus that sort of actually cuts out Europe a bit from the conversation. You know, they're really sick and tired of us Europeans going, oh, we know everything and and we're so smart and we should set the tone of the agenda. And by the way, European football is the only one watching, uh, only one worth watching. I think they are determined to use football as part of a wider strategy to shift global power towards um, towards Asia and towards the Middle East. A really good example of this was the, I think the the controversy around the beer bans and the LGBT rights um, in in Qatar. Basically, what Qataris did is is led FIFA on a merry dance, and then at the very last minute yanked it all away and said, "We're not going to." serve beer and we're not going to have the rainbow flag at anywhere and you're not going to have rainbow armbands and that wasn't because they're a shambles or chaotic it was very deliberate it was done in front of the world's media and it was done in front of the world's media to say we will not compromise what we believe to be our values just because the circus is in town and while that got negative headlines in britain and in northern europe and in america and in australia a lot of people around the world in more conservative countries applauded that vociferously they loved that and it earned qatar in that in that occasion immense credit and kudos Mm. around the around those parts of the world and people went wow they're hosting the world cup they're showing the europeans and that that other countries can do it and they're sticking to their guns about values that we we find important Mm. and i think the second thing that that those states are doing why why are saudi and qatar doing it Again, it's not to make us love them. It's not about sentiment and feeling warm and fuzzy inside. It's a matter of national security. I mean, it is really that important. It's These are two countries whose entire wealth is predicated on on resources that aren't renewable, that are going to go away. Mm. And so, I mean, Lars, you're, you're Norwegian. You, you know what happens when you have lots of resources in your country. You stick it in a, in a sovereign wealth fund yes. and make it work for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what these guys are doing. They're making sure that when the oil and the liquid natural gas runs out, that they can't just be forgotten, right? They can't just become, an, you know, thrown onto the geopolitical scrap heap. So they're trying to, A, build basically name brand recognition. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows where Qatar is now mm-hmm. around the world. B, they're ensuring that, that some of the world's most famous people and all of their entourages and so on live there and know there and and feel warm about there so you know one of the things with qatar is qatar lives in perpetual fear of being invaded by saudi well you Mm -hmm. can't invade qatar saudi can't invade qatar because there are americans and brits and french living there um and those governments won't let their citizens be bombed so um it is really a, a matter of national security and i just i think that's an important point to focus on because i think often it gets lost in the debate as to why are they doing this 
They're not doing it to make you love them. They're doing it because they have to, because it's a really strategic move. And if football fans are stuck in a paradigm of, oh, is this good for football? Is this not? It's like, it's, it, it goes so much more beyond that. It's so much more beyond that. It's so much more insidious. And I guess my message to to fans who are thinking, oh, maybe I'll watch a Saudi league game, or even, I, you know, I don't know if any players listen to this, but if I'm speaking to the next Ruben Neves, who sat there going, oh, should I take this offer from Saudi? I, it, like, you are a pawn in their game. And if you're fine with that, you know, go ahead. But don't feel like you're playing them because you're getting a ton of money. You are a pawn in a geopolitical game that goes so far beyond you and your career it's it's dizzying one thing that relates a little bit to what you're talking about and the sort of realignment of uh, of the world essentially is goes a little bit back to the documentary about the feeling of 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 everything coming tumbling down at fifa because the americans certainly took an interest and i suspect there will have been some resentment about that about this was taking along very nicely and then the Americans didn't get the World Cup, and suddenly they got a bit cranky, and now it all went wrong. I mean, that, is that is that a perception a perception you came across? It's a perception I came across. Here's what I'd say about it: is the facts are, and like this really annoyed me because we say in the documentary, and no one really like fully grasps this. The American investigation, the FBI investigation into FIFA, started before the vote. Mm. Like that is a fact. Like, like that's not that's not really up for debate. It started before the vote. So before there were any grapes to be soured, this was happening. You could argue it it picked up momentum because of what happened. But I think that's much more to do with Qatar winning than America losing. Again, this is a total disconnect between what it means for the American state to host a World Cup and what it means for the Qatari state to host a World Cup. Just as I was saying, you know, for the Qatari state, it means an awful lot and it's a matter of national security. For the American state, it kind of doesn't mean that much. I mean, it's like, it's nice, but it's like, you know, the idea, I got told this by so many people, Tashera mentioned it, so many people were saying, I was there and Bill Clinton was freaking out and Bill Clinton was smashing mirrors. <laughs> okay, if he was, Bill Clinton hadn't been president for like 15 years. Like, like so what? What's, what's Bill Clinton going to do? Like, like the idea that, you know, the idea that, that Bill Clinton can call up the DOJ and be like, you know, what, you've got to take down FIFA. It's just like, it's, it's bad movie writing. Yeah. That being said, I... There are things that have stuck in my craw about what's happened since that lead me not down conspiracy rabbit holes, but but just make me feel like things haven't gone how they should have gone. Loretta Lynch is the is the um, attorney general, so basically the top lawyer in the U.S. who announces the raids and says we've taken down FIFA and we're cleaning up, and she comes up with the you know we've shown FIFA the red card, and she's on the front cover of magazines as the FIFA Slayer. She then gets a job at a law firm that represents FIFA, and she was just at the FIFA, I think she was some congress, or maybe it was after the World Cup, talking about all the great work FIFA's done. And that feels mm. weird to me. It's Either it means FIFA is absolutely clean as a whistle and everything's perfect, or it means that at some point along the way, perhaps she's taken her eye off the ball. See, I can do football puns too, Loretta. But like, I think there are there are real question marks as to how and why further investigations were dropped so quickly, how and why certain figures weren't followed up on. Um, as I said, Sepp Blatter has never been in handcuffs. 
um could he have been I, I i don't know and again i don't want to get your podcast taken off air but one wonders if the u.s department of justice really wanted to go after him could they have mm. was there enough um and people would look at the timing of the of the the u.s being given i mean not given the right to to host the world cup they they won it in a vote but people would look at that and look at the timing of the charges seeming to melt away and be left with the sour taste in their mouth so on the one hand, it's a complete mis- misconception to say that the US initiated this because of losing the vote. I think that's just a kind of bit of a childish view of the world. But on the other hand, clearly, clearly people at FIFA and pe- uh, are much cozier with the Americans now. What's going to be really interesting to see, last thing I'll say on this, is how Gianni Infantino pivots mm. to the US in 2026. Because his messaging in Qatar in 2022 was... Oh, the Americans are so arrogant. They tell us what to do all the time. Well, hearing, you know, in, in this Qatar World Cup, we're going to show that another way is possible. What's he going to say when he goes to the US? Um, and kind of, will the Americans care, really? If yeah. Probably not. I mean, I guess that's the point. If you're Infantino, it doesn't matter quite as much what you say, because uh, you're not really, because it's more business over, the, it's more, more being hosted as a business thing than as a nation building thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Infantino is partly turning towards the Saudis, I think, for cash because he kind of burnt some bridges with the Americans. America is the great final frontier for football. Uh, Blatter tried to... Havilland tried to crack it in 94. Blatter tried to crack it. Like, it, it is FIFA's bet noir is can we get America truly hooked on football? Mm. And I... I wonder if Infantino kind of regrets throwing his lot in away from America. Maybe he thinks he can pull it back. But that's where the money's going to come from. And if you look at who's buying football clubs, we get really vexed about, you know, the Saudis buying Newcastle and the Emiratis buying Man City. But it's private equity buying Burnley that I personally feel just as weird about. Mm. Not for the same moral reasons, but because I personally believe that whoever owns a football club should have that football club's best interest at stake and it shouldn't be part of a wider strategic portfolio game so you know i wouldn't want my club owned by any government because ultimately they they will chuck you as soon as you're no longer relevant in the same way that a private equity firm will chuck you as soon as you're no longer relevant if you start hemorrhaging money they won't go right we're going to reinvest money and we're going to invest in the local youth or whatever they just go right see you liquidate buy um so there's going to be, I think that'll be the the next step in football is so much more private equity pouring into football. And we've seen it Leeds, Birmingham, um, Wrexham, but that's kind of different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different confluence of things. One thing that struck me a f- slightly earlier in the conversation is the challenge of, the challenge of us uh, sniffy Northern Europeans of, of crafting some kind of message that might actually get you friends and get you votes within FIFA. Like, is that even possible? Because obviously in me being from Norway and a number of listeners being from Norway, there's a big emphasis on, on Lisa Klavnes, the mm. head of the Norwegian FA, who, you know, held a big speech at... Uh, yeah, we at, feature at, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good speech. And good speech, but does that kind of thing work? Does it achieve anything? Does it do anything? Or does it actually kind of entrench those divisions that actually Infantino has been very good at exploiting so far? Here's the thing about our documentary that I, I it comes back to your point about the criticism around Infantino. 
I hope, and what we really try to do with our documentary is not necessarily take sides. We weren't trying to say so-and-so is the good guy, so-and-so is the bad guy. We weren't trying to say Lisa Clavinus is right and everyone else is wrong. What we were trying to do was simply present, here are the things that happened. Along the, every step of the way of all the events, here were the multiple perspectives from different people on what was happening. Make up your own minds. We tried really hard with the documentary not to say, by the way, you know, bomb, 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 scary music. This is the bad guy. And you need, if people go away going, I really don't like Jack Warner, that's their prerogative. But yeah. also, we tried to balance out, even with people like Jack Warner, who are seen to have been some of the more nefarious characters in this, even with people like them, we tried to show that there were reasons why people liked him. Like in Jack Warner, he was seen as being a voice for the Caribbean mm, and, and mm, so on. Mm. And so, I think in some ways, what we can do and what I hope we did with FIFA Uncovered is. Just present the facts and let people walk away with their own opinions. But I also think, and, and I'm going to totally contradict everything I've just said, I do also think there are some universal values that are worth standing up for. Like, you know, to take one issue, um, gay rights and LGBTQ plus rights in football, I think it is imperative that any country that hosts a World Cup needs to welcome with open arms and fully embrace all... all like any and all fans, including LGBTQ+. I think it's, you know, it's really different to something like a beer ban where like the beer being banned, okay, fine, you want to drink a beer and watch the game, but it, you know, you that's a choice. You can't choose uh, whether you are a, uh, your sexual orientation and if you're a player or a fan or a coach or a physio, whoever, like you need to be able to go to those countries. And, and then people on the other side of the debate go might go, well, that's not our culture. And then you go, well, okay, that's, that's up to you, but you can't host that tournament. Yeah. Because you can't discriminate against people um, on sexual orientation. So until you are ready to welcome them in, no tournaments for you. And I, and I think it's a really tough balance to, to kind of um, to have. And it, and it can't be absolutist. But I do, think, I do think that's something that we sniffy Northern Europeans um, actually should be digging our heels into. And I think that applies where it applies to the Saudis by Newcastle. I watched the press conference with gareth southgate mm -hmm. uh, about was it today or yesterday yeah. talking about jordan henderson and for those who haven't seen it they just asked you know the, the journalist asked very directly does this tell gay fans that they are basically not being listened to and southgate was shocked visibly yeah, shocked yeah and kind of flubs his answer like oh you know i think we need to call it out when we see it Jordan Henderson going to Saudi is a massive middle finger to all the fans whose values he purports to support. And here in the, you know, here in Britain, if those are our values, if tolerance is is a core value of ours, we should go. He's not eligible for selection anymore mm. because I think if he had been, say, vocally racist, we wouldn't want to select him to represent our national team. So I think we need to be. I actually think in, in some ways in the way we need to be more stubborn rather than less. We need to be more vocal about our beliefs. And I, I lastly, I would say that the thing that we can do is, is whether it's Man City or Newcastle, keep talking about the ownership. Yeah. You know, anyone who's like, oh, just keep politics out of it. Like horse, stable door, bolt. Also, if politics were not part of it, they wouldn't be owning those football clubs. Like the, the politics is the reasons they're there. Yeah. And what what I'd say is like the you know like the comparison I made with the with gay rights and beer bans is there's stuff that we that are that is up for debate. Like should should 
beer be on sale at the World Cup? Like, do you need a beer? No, you can choose to have a beer. It'd be nice if you had a beer, but it's not an essential. And there's stuff that, to my mind, are values that shouldn't be up for debate. Yeah. Can women play the game? Can gay fans and gay players and gay backroom stuff, gay journalists go cover a tournament? Like, that's not up for debate. Um, I, you know, like, what happens this season if South, if the Newcastle want to wear a rainbow armband? Like, will mm. that be permitted? I haven't really heard too much chat about that, but I have to assume that'll ruffle some feathers. Like, this will be a gradual creep and we need to decide in this country and oh, everyone needs to decide what do we stand firm on? Like, what are the things, what are our red lines? Mm. To me, Jordan Henderson going to Saudi is a red line. Mm. To me, not being able to wear a rainbow armband is a red line. To me, funny enough, beer ban is not a red line. I think it looks amateurish, but I, I, it's not a red line. Since we are now in the international break, I, I have to say, I'm a, not everyone loves international football the way they love club football. I'm very different. I think international football is amazing. And I actually think international football is kind of isolate, insulated from some of the big challenges of modern club football. The problem of, of more and more resources being pooled with a smaller and smaller group of, of, of clubs, things becoming more predictable, uh, this sort of stuff. We're not going to have that in international football because you can't buy players. And it's it, it's really, and it has a, a unifying effect on countries. Like, again, in Norway being my closest example, everyone knows when where they were when we beat Brazil in, in 98. You know, those sort of nation-building moments you, you, you get in international football in a way you just don't in club football so i think it's amazing and worth uh, sort of standing up and fighting for but it does from the sound of it sound like you knowing the subject very very well you're you're a little bit pessimistic about <laughs> the people who are in charge of administrating uh, this great part of the sport and the future going forward with these guys yeah to to quote um of this parish philippe Claire, if i didn't love football so much i'd bloody hate it like yeah. I love football. I love the game of football. I'll watch Moldova San Marino. I'll watch Kazakhstan take on Burma. I I I love watching the game and it's because I love watching the game that I really care about it. It's, you know, when I was having sleepless nights making FIFA Uncovered, the thing that kept me going is actually this is the thing I, I, I truly love and want to see in a better place. And I agree, actually, that one of the, you know, people ask me, what, like people said, oh, do you want to, you're not going to watch the World Cup, are you? Of course I did. I watched every minute of it. I love the World Cup. It's my favorite thing. Every four years, it's an amazing tournament and it unites the world. I mean, it's funny what you're saying about not being able to buy players. I mean, you know. <laughs> the Qataris did their best, huh? Yeah, they, they gave it a go. But actually, it was the one, it, it is the most level of leveling play, level playing fields. I, I wasn't sat there rooting for Qatar to go down. I just, you know, I, I believe in equity and fairness. And on the football pitch, um, and similarly, um, you know, I actually, I spent a lot of time in Argentina. When Saudi Arabia beat Argentina, I was cheering. Yeah. I just thought it was brilliant. No, absolutely. I, you know, people have this perception that we're just joyless and and we're totally against. I, I, I have, like, I loved watching the Saudi players celebrate beating Argentina because that's what football's about. Football is not about sticking Neymar on a private jet and paying him a million quid a week. And I love the games. Um, I think an international break this early in the season is bottom of the list of FIFA's things to fix <laughs> but it should be fixed because it is ridiculous but uh, yeah I, like I'll totally be watching and I just I don't want anyone to come away from FIFA Uncovered being like that's it football is ruined because it shouldn't be ruined it should I hope give people a sense of like I understand this world now I understand the politics and I'm going to be a better football fan and if what that means is you go to your local team and support that if what that means is you are more 
you know, you're a more thoughtful, engaged fan. You can be a really good Newcastle fan and criticise the ownership structure. Um, you can be a really good United fan and, and Manchester United fan and criticise the ownership structure. I hope that's what people take away is engage more, not less. I think that's a really good message to end it on. Thank you so much. You've been very generous uh, with your time. I have this sort of thing. I've fallen into as a final question when I speak to people. I like to just drop on them. What haven't I asked you about so far about this subject? What haven't we spoken about that you, in 10 minutes, when I've left the room, I think, damn it, we should have gone into that. Now, that's a, yeah, I, I like that one because that's often what we ask that's often what we ask people when we're interviewing yeah. them, like what happened. And and I'm going to do the same thing and just go kind of totally blank. Um, I can start doing something else and pretend to be leaving. And <laughs> check my phone. What's this, what's going on here? Has, the tra- has there been a transfer? Have, have there been any transfers? I don't know. I got to open. I got an email about my book. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, it could be bad, but I think it's good. I, 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 I will, I will use the floor to make a series of rogue predictions, which I don't think are particularly revolutionary, but I'll, I'll, I'll just throw them out there anyway. Um, I'm really interested in why Saudi Arabia is doing this because I think people have this perception like, oh, Saudi is just unlimited money. Um, it's actually like they're spending so much money on this, and I don't want people to think that like this is a bottomless money pit. Like this is calculated. If you look at Qatar, like where are all the players in the Qatari league? They haven't just stayed there, right? They're, they're, pretty, they're all leaving. Mm-hmm. Qatar is not keeping the same level of investment in sport um, indefinitely. So what's the future with Saudi is kind of the, the question that um, I'm going to ask myself and, and answer with some rogue predictions and uh, maybe I'll get some right, maybe I'll get some wrong. I think we'll see Saudi teams in UEFA championships like really soon. I think we will see Al-Hilal parachuted into the to the conference UEFA conference league at some point really soon um the thing the news that truly surprised me over the last few days was or last few weeks was that um Saudi looked like they're going to withdraw for their bid from the 2030 world cup Mm. um for those who don't know they had a joint bid mooted with Egypt and Greece and I have to assume that the reason they're withdrawing it is because they're going to go for 2034. Not that they don't want to host the World Cup, but I think they, they're they savvy enough to realise it will look really bad if um, they get the World Cup in 2030 and everyone freaks out about it. And the 2031 is a really sentimental one because it's 100 years since the first World Cup. So it would be a, a punchy move to go up against the sentimental bid, which is the South American bid. So I think the Saudis have realised that 2034 is the one to go for. Mm. And also that they don't have to share the limelight potentially with Greece and Egypt, that they can go it alone. And that the big stumbling block to their bid is, well, they have two stumbling blocks. One is they're, quote, unquote, not a footballing country. Well, they just beat Argentina, which they're very proud of. Plus, they're building this incredible league so they can put that. And the second big, big stumbling block is that they can't throw money around to pockets of voters. In theory, like that, that will be frowned upon. But here's the thing is is the next World Cups will be voted on by by absolute majority, so not a committee. So that gives them another four years to make alliances, to send out messaging and, and to get votes on side. So I, I think we will see a, a 2034 World Cup in Saudi. I think we will see Saudi clubs competing in Europe. And I actually, in some ways, don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I like the idea that... Um, I. I've always I've always liked the idea that 
there should be a world club championship that's like the best clubs in the world genuinely competing with one another mm. um and i think european stranglehold in football is going to end but i i guess i guess the the takeaway for for people and i would say this you know with newcastle fans i'd say this to man united fans who are looking at a qatari takeover right now is just remember that like <laughs> A state ownership isn't is for Christmas. It isn't for life. <laughs> that, that these things don't last, and you are expendable and part of a wider strategy. And I just, you know, before you think that this is the money tap forever, just take a deep breath and maybe call some of the fans in in Malaga or Anzi Makachakla and ask how how that's working out. Um, interesting that I, 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 I won't let you go until we've kind of done the because I think the parachuting Al Hilal into the European competitions. I wonder if that might be a red line. Maybe not for fans. I'm not sure enough care enough. But I wonder if that could be a red line for a pretty significant block of sniffy European FAs. Uh, and that they might not have a big voice in FIFA, but there are enough of them for their voices to matter in UEFA. So I think if Shefferin allows that to happen, I suspect you'll see a pretty significant chunk of European countries going together and causing trouble for him. I think it all depends on Shefferin's ambitions. So I believe that Shefferin, like any good UEFA president, like every UEFA president before him, wants to be FIFA president one day because it is the second biggest job in football, arguably the first biggest job in football. You know, it's it's arguably the most serious job in football is running UEFA. Running FIFA is, is Banana Republic stuff, yeah. but like running UEFA is a, is a real, that is the administration of football. And if Shefferin wants to be FIFA president... He needs to convince the majority of FIFA members that he's got their interests at heart and he's not aligned with the, the, the sniffy Europeans as we've taken to calling yeah. them. So I think I think he will probably end up supporting that in the long term and I think there will be real financial reasons to do so. Ultimately, if the Saudis turn up with a huge financial package and offer to bring TV, you know, buy TV rights for a huge amount of money it will be a really hard thing to say no to. Um, and this is the, you know, this is the funny thing is is the philosophical quandary we have in football right now is, is football, is it entertainment? Is it a business? Is it a pure sport? Mm. It's the world, it, it starts to move to a model where it's just entertainment. Yeah, no, that's definitely the, the, the Saudi approach to it. That's, that's content creation much more than sport. I mean, for me, I've not spoken about it hardly on this pod at all because I think a league where you have a state uh, for state-owned clubs is not sport. Like, I don't care what happens in it. Like, that's much closer to the WWE, I think, than to actual sport. And good luck to the people who want to go and make money there, but I don't care. Like, th- th- that's not my remit. But I, it's interesting. It's This could be me being naive, but I think... Saudi clubs being dropped into UEFA club tournaments is such a red line that we could see countries such as my home country and a few other small countries considering withdrawing teams from the competition and, and actually putting their foot down completely. And uh, because I think I naively believe that that is uh, the idea of confederation competitions no longer being confederation in that sense. I mean, I it's knife it's edge. It's knife edge, right? Like, I mean... It's it's a wider question, but 
Kazakhstan are in UEFA. Azerbaijan oh, are in oh, UEFA. And this is what the PR companies here in London working on behalf of the Saudis will be hitting, right? Like Israel are in there. Like, what are your, what's your problem? Like, yeah. th- th- this, is, this is the talking points we'll be hearing, of course. Well, Israel has got more to do with the fact that Isra- half the Asian countries wouldn't play Israel. No, absolutely. I'm just saying, if I'm running the bot farm for the Saudis... You oh, know, yeah. they, they, and you are, right? <laughs> well, this... I, I'd be living in a very different house if I was... <laughs> Here's the thing about Azerbaijan is, I mean, you know, Azerbaijan has a questionable human rights record. Kazakhstan has a questionable human rights record. When those clubs play in Europe, we didn't really cause a fuss. I, I did something on the final being in Baku a couple of years you, ago. You caused a fuss. I, about five people read that piece. So, I mean, that didn't do much. Yeah, I remember I remember lots of my friends who uh, here in North London were Arsenal fans and got in, uh, you know, went over to Baku very merrily. Um it you know and and Atletico ran around with Land of Fire at Azerbaijan yeah. on their show. Yeah. Basically, the point is, football fans. It, it's knife edge stuff, and football fans might say, "Do you know what? It'd be really fun to have these mega clubs in, and and a part of them might enjoy the Schadenfreude of hammering them." Mm. Um, and it it will be genuinely interesting. I think one of the things again for for people, I I personally haven't been to Saudi, but I have been to Qatar. I saw firsthand kind of the hubris around the Qatari national team. There was a sense like, oh, we're Asian champions. We're going to do really well. And we've got a great coach. And like, if you if you have never lived in a totalitarian state, it's quite hard to imagine just like what the flow of information is like in those states. Mm. And I think there is this real sense in the Arab world, in Saudi and in Qatar, like I say, that, that these football clubs are part of the dawning of a new era of non-European dominance of 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 Saudi dominance, of Arab dominance. And there is a sense there that finally we are in our rightful place at the center of the world. And they see their football teams as a really logical extension of that. And it might be a really interesting moment where it could be, it could be a humbling moment. They might be right. They might be able to just buy all of these talented players and go, well, we're going to have a really excellent teams and potentially getting into Europe might be the, the thing that convinces more players to come over in the prime of their lives and it, it, it is it is a real watershed moment for yeah. football so go to your local club go watch the two man and a dog games um go to your local women's team i mean you can if you want to watch brilliant football just like the top quality of women's football is amazing nowadays yeah. so, so if your if your argument is oh, i don't want to go watch clapton because they're in the ninth tier well then you know go watch go watch top flight women's football it's really really good and it doesn't have all of this bullshit <laughs> yeah my instinct is that the saudi in club competition here would be like the super league thing it's too much of a departure from tradition and people would really struggle with it but i i can i have been known to be naive about these things so, so so we'll see but i actually think one of the rare areas where i think fifa and even mr infantino might be onto something is that i am all up for an extended club world cup that actually functions as a tournament you'd have to wiggle the the calendar around a little bit to make it work but that's in my mind the in the pyramid of club competitions you have local regional you know continental and then global tournament that it's, there should be a good club world cup i i'm all for it i spent a lot of time in latin america and it's like if you go to you know it's like you cannot believe how massive Corinthians are in Brazil yeah. or how massive Alianza Lima are in Peru. Like, I think the the global game is missing out on that. But I think, you, you, like, you, what's really interesting about what about what you say there, Lars, is, like, so much of global football politics is, can really be distilled to UEFA versus FIFA. Mm. Those are the two big forces. 
and so much of it is is just those two vying for control. So if UEFA say the sky is blue, FIFA will say the sky is red and vice versa. And often to the detriment of their own logic. So let me give you a really clear example, right? When the European Super League comes out, FIFA, in a bid to curry favour, stand up and say, well, this is a terrible idea and it's against football and fans don't want it. And they sit there going, yeah, we've got a finger on the pulse. But then... Infantino gets his mates in the in the African Federation to set up an African Super League. Yeah. So Africa has its first Super League this yeah. year. No, one, I mean, like, no, no, no one's talking about this really outside of Africa because you know it's not seen as a big thing. But like, FIFA have shown they don't really care about Super League versus not Super League. What they care about is making UEFA look like a bunch of dickheads. And so it, it will really depend on political willpower. Again, one of the things I can see happening is if FIFA go, we're gonna launch a really big club world cup and it's going to be truly global uefa faced with that might choose the lesser of two evils and say okay we'll admit a couple of non we'll we'll court the saudi sides as long as they pull out their backing for fifa and on and on it goes and you end up in this washing machine of cynical politics which is you know depressing <laughs> it really is well i think that's a good, that note. That's a good yeah. place then yeah washing machine of cynical politics a potential title for a future uh, documentary on uh, on the direction of the game the infantino years perhaps yeah, i don't know well get it tattooed on my forehead or something <laughs> thank you so much again for coming on this has been an education thank you very much thank you for having me A washing machine of cynical politics. Yeah, uplifting, isn't it? That that does seem to be the state of things. But Mal says we do, we do have the power as fans. You can put your foot down. You can say things. You know, the people did during the whole Super League crisis, and I, I, I still think people might do it again if they're trying to. I mean, if they, if it does get to the point where they try to inject. Uh, Saudi teams into UEFA tournaments. I think for some people that's going to be a red line in some countries. But it is kind of up to you guys. I, I suspect if you're listening to this, you're probably someone who cares quite a lot about football. You're, you're probably someone who actually does think about this stuff. And, and, and people like you have to actually do something and just not go along with every, everything. And I, I also think, there's this is naive of me, but I think there are far worse ideas out there right now than actually just getting in touch with your local FA. And, and ask, like, what, what, what is our plan for if this happens? Like, what do we believe in here? I know there are people listening to this who, who work in the game, who are involved with clubs at, at various levels, whether that's grassroots or slightly higher. And, and listen, we discussed it with Miles. The football democracy is, is kind of broken. It's very broken, but it does exist in theory. And, and, and I think it's important that something like if... You know, if Al-Itihad certainly being thrown into the Champions League because of money, if that's a red line for you, just make the case. Speak to your representative. Again, naive of me to think it matters, but I think it can matter in some countries more than others. And, you know, decisions are made by people who turn up. That's just kind of how the life um, works. And uh, this is totally against uh, your values and the values of the place you're you're from. Then you got to turn up. That's what I'm thinking. So that, that's that's worth trying. And, uh, I mean, obviously, hopefully you won't get to it, but, uh, but, but we'll see. Anyway, thanks for listening to these last two episodes. Slightly unusual for, for, for The Last Resort. I really enjoyed uh, recording them. And 
when I was editing in them, I also realized this is just kind of, this is all good stuff. Didn't want to get rid of any of it, so that's the way we end up with a double episode. But uh, normal service to be resumed shortly, I, I believe. I will, I will see you all then. <laughs>